Well, hi, and I think first of all, say Happy New Year and welcome to 2017 and welcome to our Smart Building series for this year. I'm really pleased to uh, be talking to Billy Rios today, who is founder of Widescope. How are you doing, Billy? Hey, how's it going? Uh, thanks for having me. No problem at all. So we're going to be talking about cybersecurity day and really a look back uh, at what happened in 2016. As you can see from the slide, we'll be talking about Mirai. Uh, and then also what, you know, our thoughts and what's going to be happening in 2017 with cybersecurity and sort of with a slant on buildings and and maybe sort of pick apart some things that we think uh, are really important um, uh, are going to be coming up over the next year. Uh, and let me just save for all the guys out there. Um, if you want to ask questions, then please type them in. Happy to make this as interactive as possible. Uh, and, you know, I'll, uh, I'll try and um, put, put them in um, on ask them to Billy or myself whenever we can. Uh, so let's get started. So, Billy, I'd just be good for you to um, introduce yourself to people that don't know you. Tell us a bit about okay, yeah. your, your history in the company. Okay. Um, I have a slide here that kind of goes over uh, my background. Um, and so maybe I'll just start with the deck. And uh, if there's any questions about anything that you see, uh, don't have don't hesitate to throw them into the, the moderation queue, and then we'll see if we can answer those at yeah. the end. Here. Great. So, um, uh, so I'll get started with this presentation here. We advance it here. Um, just kind of an overview of the company. Uh, we do a lot of building hacking, and so and we'll explain what that means maybe you know in conversations after this. But we've looked at a variety of building automation systems. We've looked at sporting infrastructure. We've looked at hospitals. Uh, we've looked at secure facilities. Uh, our focus really mainly is the cyber side, but uh, we look at some of the physical stuff as well. But um, for, you know, I did want to say you know thanks, James, for having me. Uh, it's been a it was a pretty exciting year last year and and I think 2017 is probably going to be uh, you know just as exciting so uh, but um, you know there are some public service announcements I'd like to get into before we uh, talk about Mirai uh, if you're a, if you're a building owner uh, or or you manage a facility of any kind uh, you really have to sanitize your equipment before you dispose of it right so uh, if you have a controller or a thermostat or some kind of uh, uh, you know, software that's associated with your infrastructure, uh, you really need to sanitize that. that. That This needs to be part of your uh, device life cycle and the disposal process. And so uh, some of the things that we've seen over the last year, last year, uh, when, whenever we buy a device, it almost inevitably has the configuration for whatever building that it came from. So uh, if you look here, you know, this particular device has a really strong Wi-Fi key and it joins the facility Wi-Fi. Uh, but it doesn't really matter how strong your Wi-Fi key is if it's uh, in clear text like this, right? And so you certainly don't want to be selling this to someone on eBay or something like that. So uh, if you manage a facility or if you manage devices in any way uh, and you have a device lifecycle program where you're getting rid of devices, uh, make sure you take a really good look at those devices before you uh, dispose of them. Even if you're giving the device to a third party for disposal, uh, you'll be surprised as to how often those devices end up on an auction website or something like that. So. Uh, that's just kind of a public uh, service announcement. Uh, another piece is um, protect your field devices. Uh, this is a picture of a, a hotel in Asia that I stayed at last year. Uh, it looks like just kind of a common, uh, you know, uh, dresser drawer there. But if you uh, take the shelving out, and if you uh, take the little pegs out and kind of push the false wall there, uh, you'll see that there's actually a building automation system in the hotel room itself, right? And so. Uh, this could create a, a little bit of a dangerous situation, especially if the automation systems are connected to your facility's back net or uh, if, if it's connected to your building automation control network in any way. And so uh, if you've already deployed field devices to places where you can't see them or control them, uh, then you need to implement some effective monitoring. Otherwise, you could find yourself in a lot of trouble. So um, those are my two public service announcements before we get into the the malware that we had a chance to look at uh, last year. So uh, if there's any questions about these two specific things, uh, we'll just answer that after the presentation here. So um, I, I'm Billy. Uh, I, I've been around for a little while. I've been to school. I've worked for a couple different companies. Uh, I worked for Google. I've worked for Microsoft as a security engineer uh, and a security program, man program manager there. Uh, I had a, a startup called Spearpoint a couple years ago. Uh, that startup was acquired by Silence, and, and so we did some work for them. Uh, and now I'm actually on my second startup here called Widescope. We're focused very much on embedded devices. So, 
Um, <clears throat> cybersecurity can be dangerous. Uh, so uh, this is usually a perspective that only a few people in the industry had. Uh, so for example, uh, I was the security program manager at Internet Explorer uh, when an Internet Explorer vulnerability was used against Google uh, and uh, a certain uh, nation state essentially tried to steal uh, the Google source code you know, for Gmail and things like that. And so uh, they used a bug in my product. And uh, I remember you know, it was kind of an all-hands-on-deck event when that happened in order to try to fix that. Uh, I also had a chance to work at Google, and um, we actually caught some uh, nation-state hackers trying to exploit some Gmail users. Uh, we, w we wrote a blog post about it uh, in 2011. Uh, you can search on the internet and find this blog post here. Uh, and so uh, the kind of takeaway is that uh, you know, when we were in these positions, uh, we saw attacks against our infrastructure and users. And it was actually it was kind of a position that a lot of people didn't uh, have the opportunity to see. It was a perspective that uh, other folks didn't really understand because uh, at the time it seemed like uh, only really, really high-value targets were being targeted. So places like Microsoft and Google and uh, other organizations that had a lot of, uh, you know, really high-power intellectual property and things like that. And so uh, when we would talk to people about what we've seen, uh, a lot of folks, you know, kind of thought we were talking about, you know, movie scenarios and things like that. But uh, I think things have changed, right? And so we're starting to see a lot more attacks against a lot more different things. And so. Uh, you know, we saw last year there was an attack against uh, the Ukraine uh, power grid. Uh, we also saw some uh, ICS-focused malware uh, last year as well. And then, you know, it seems like uh, just regular organizations and companies, some of which who thought uh, they had nothing interesting at all to give, uh, are, are under attack now as well, right? So uh, it's an interesting piece. So, but what, what I want to do is fill you in on uh, this uh, piece of malware here. This is uh, the Japanese characters for Mirai. And, uh, what Mariah actually uh, is, is uh, in Japanese, it means the future, right? And so uh, whoever created Mariah, uh, you know, had, a, had a, uh, an interesting perspective, and they basically wrote this malware as if it's going to be the malware of the future. And so uh, I first uh, want to talk about what happened with Mariah. In September of 2016, uh, Mariah, this, this malware, which infected a lot of different devices, caused one of the largest distributed denial of service attacks ever seen. Right, and um, and uh, it's not the largest one ever seen, but I believe it's the largest directed attack uh, people have ever seen. What I what I mean by that is uh, the di distributed denial of service attacks that were larger than what Mirai had initiated were actually taking advantage of what they call amplification, where uh, one of the systems could cause a small uh, make a small request and would result in a huge response, and they would use that huge response uh, to to do a denial of service. Mirai actually didn't do that. Uh, Mirai just attacked the devices directly, uh, and it, whoever wanted, whoever they wanted to distribute a denial of service, they just attacked them directly. They didn't do an amplification attack, uh, which is pretty interesting. But um, uh, they targeted a lot of different folks, and so uh, this was very interesting in the fact that, uh, that you know from time to time we talk to folks, and they uh, they usually have something to say like, hey, you know, no one really knows who we are. Uh, there's no real reason why someone would target us, and so. Uh, if we look at uh, Mirai, it actually targeted a journalist uh, and actually targeted a journalist website, right? And so uh, I hardly think someone would uh, consider that critical infrastructure, uh, although maybe the journalist did. But uh, I, I think it's interesting in that uh, folks could actually use these capabilities to essentially execute their will, uh, whether that's a political statement, whether it's a personal statement, uh, whether it's a financial statement or something else, right? And so it's actually really hard to determine who's going to be the next target. Uh, if someone is willing to use one of the largest distributed denial of service attacks against a journalist's blog, uh, they would almost certainly be willing to use it against a company or another government or something like that. Uh, and there was a lot of news about uh, a Chinese firm that admitted that their devices were kind of involved in these attacks, and so a lot of people kind of focused on these on the Chinese firm and their DVR technology and their their smart camera technology. But I, I want to fill you in on on our experience. Uh, with working with Mirai, and it actually all started with a phone call. And so we get a phone call uh, from a manufacturer, and it was not a Chinese manufacturer. It was a North American manufacturer. I'm not going to say which one, obviously, uh, but they had called us and said, hey, we, we need some help with this situation. And their situation is that uh, the manufacturer was actually contacted by law enforcement, and law enforcement had informed this manufacturer uh, about the, the fact that their device was also 
uh, targeted by Mirai, and they had a lot of different infected devices in the wild that were participating in distributed denial of services. So uh, I, I want to make it clear uh, to, to, to explain the situation here. The manufacturer of these devices didn't even realize that their devices were being compromised and being pulled into this large botnet uh, that was then in turn being used to attack journalists and financial institutions and some of the core infrastructure of the internet, a DNS service. Uh, the law enforcement agency had to tell the manufacturer that this was going on. And when they told the manufacturer, uh, the manufacturer actually had no idea what they were supposed to do. And so they ended up contacting us uh, to take a look at the malware. And so uh, we looked at the malware. We found a lot of interesting things. And then I think you know a month or two after we had looked at the malware, uh, someone had actually released the source code for the malware to the general public. And here is the actual blog post from the person who released the source code. So uh, they went onto a very well-known hacker forum and they said, hey look, uh, I'm hanging my hat up, I made a lot of money in the distributed denial of service industry and I'm going to release the source code for what I wrote. And so uh, we're going to go over the source code just a little bit to show you what Mirai could do and then uh, we'll take some questions here. So the first thing that we thought was interesting, we, f we found this out before we looked at the source, but looking at the source makes it very, uh, very, very uh, apparent. Uh, Mirai is meant to run on embedded devices and so um, if you look at this little uh, red box that I've highlighted here, uh, Mirai can run on essentially any embedded device that I've seen. And so uh, if you have a building automation controller or a thermostat that's running a real-time operating system, uh, Mirai has been compiled to run on the operating system or that processor architecture. So if you look at the middle of the box there where you see things like MIPS and ARM and ARM7 and PPC, that's PowerPC, uh, those are the most common processor architecture for embedded devices. And so if this malware uh, somehow made it to your building automation systems, uh, it would actually run on, on those embedded devices. So it's a very important thing to understand. Uh, one of the other things that we saw as well is it's very configurable. So uh, if we look at what we see here in the source code, uh, you can easily configure a domain and a, and a port for command and control. And, and this shows you that uh, Mirai did a lot of things kind of in an autonomous way, but it also allowed someone to control the device as well. And so uh, that means uh, someone is in your network, right? We, we have to remember that as well. So a lot of focus, a lot, there was a lot of focus on the distributed denial services pieces, uh, but we also have to remember that if your device is participating in a distributed denial service, uh, whoever is running that distributed denial service also has access to your network, right? And so it's a very important piece I thought uh, was lost on the distributed denial service attacks. Uh, Mirai had a, uh, a variety of built-in attacks inside of the uh, binaries that were running on the system. So uh, they didn't just limit themselves to one or two different types of attacks. Uh, if you look at the code here, uh, we see a variety of different types of attacks that uh, Mirai could use the devices to essentially execute. So they could just pick uh, one of the distributed, uh, just a denial service attacks that they wanted to initiate and it would just launch it. So they weren't limited uh, in any way and they could add more if they wanted. And so, uh, and this piece here is shows that um, this is the username and password list that Mirai uh, essentially used to infect devices. And so, um, you know, when we looked at this, uh, we saw some usernames and passwords that were very familiar to us uh, having done lots of building automation assessments. And so this, of course, isn't the entire list. I think the entire list is somewhere around uh, 50 or 60 username and password combinations. But, uh, you know, looking at the username and password combinations that Mirai was using to infect devices will give you some understanding of what devices they were targeting. And, and it's a lot. It's not just uh, Chinese cameras and DVRs. It's a lot of different devices. So... Uh, and then uh, what we also saw was something that was very interesting. If you look over to the right-hand side there, you'll see some comments that were in the source code. Uh, these are IP addresses that Mirai did not want to attack. And so uh, they were very careful in saying, hey, look, uh, if we're in these, if the device that we're about to compromise is in this range of devices, uh, we don't want to infect them and use those as a hopping point for other attacks. And so um, that's a pretty interesting piece of logic that was put in there. Uh, we thought that was that was interesting to show that uh, the people who wrote this malware actually gave a lot of thought into what they were doing, uh, and they gave a lot of thought to even some of the non-technical pieces of it as well. So, 
Um, this is the, the database username and password, not for the malware, but for the actual command and control. Uh, and so I think it shows that, hey, you know, gone are the days where you just deploy malware and let it fly out there. Uh, this is really an operation that people are running. In order to actually control Mirai and make it, uh, make it do its master's bidding, uh, you know, the master essentially has to set up its own infrastructure to control the hundreds of thousands of devices that were infected. Uh, and then the last piece here, uh, you know, may give us some insight as to where this came from. Uh, if you look at, you know, the name of Mirai and if you look at the, the blog posting or the forum posting that uh, whatever person put the source code out into the public for, it seems like, uh, you know, it may have been Japanese hackers that had created Mirai. Uh, but if we look at some of the source code, we actually see some references to uh, some Russian uh, language that's inside of it. And so uh, this may be an indication that uh, either more than one person was working on this malware, or maybe even more than one group, uh, and, th and those groups may have been geographically dispersed amongst a lot of different countries, uh, at least a couple different. I think at last count, uh, about 500,000 devices uh, were estimated to be infected. Uh, that's a lot of devices, and, and I'm sure that uh, not all of them have been cleaned yet, so I'm sure there's still some remnants of this uh, out there somewhere. And because people now have the source code, uh, they can actually make you know, tweaks and adjustments as, as needed, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a Mirai variant uh, being unleashed sometime this year in, in a big fashion. So um, that's the deck. Um, you know, that's just the perspective that we had when we looked at the actual malware itself. Um, so, I, and I think, uh, you know, we're ready to take any questions if you guys have any. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. And uh, as Billy said, like, if any of you guys want to want to put some questions to him now, uh, please do. I've got loads anyway myself, so I think we could talk about this for hours. What, um, just going sort of a step back and looking at some of the things that you that you mentioned, the fact that it's become, in inverted commas, you know, open source, or at least the source code is out there now, um, what what does that mean? I mean, we're you can essentially, as you said, see different variants of this. Um, do you have any indication about how it might grow or, or how it might be used in the future? Yeah, it it, it will certainly grow. Um, no one knows what the motivations of the person or the group that wrote this, why they wanted to open source it. Um, I, I think one of the most popular uh, kind of theories is that um, Mirai was somewhat special in that it attacked embedded devices, and the way that it did it uh, was a very unique way, right? I mean, as we saw, it, it had a lot of different modules for essentially every processor architecture that you could encounter, uh, and so it can infect a huge variety of devices. And what people suspect is that uh, if one group were con to continue to use this malware, uh, it may kind of single them out, and it, it may, uh, you know, um, it may uh, spark some law enforcement activity to try to find who these people are. And by open sourcing their malware, uh, now everyone has it, right? And so uh, it's going to be extremely difficult to say, "Hey, look, we found this malware, and because we found this malware, we can attribute it to you or this group uh, or this individual uh, or this nation," right? So uh, we can't do that anymore because uh, the malware is open sourced. Uh, yeah. Literally anyone can take the malware uh, code now, create their own code, modify it in any way that they want, extend it in any way that they want, and so it's going to be hard to kind of pin down future attacks against one group. And so that's kind of the most popular theory as to why they did that. Right. Uh, the second piece of it is, is that you know the culture I think of, of some of these organizations uh, on the hacker side, especially the black hat side, is. There is quite a bit of information sharing. Whether the information sharing is done through you know, stealing each other's wares and source code, uh, or just selling it or trading it, uh, it happens quite a bit, right? So, um, I, I think part of it might have, might have just been cultural to uh, put it put it out there. You know, if we believe what the forum post from the author uh, said, you know, uh, apparently the author had been doing distributed denial service for some time now and made quite a bit of money, and they're just ready to essentially retire, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe there was some altruistic means of saying, hey, look, I want to enable the next generation of distributed denial service workers. Mm -hmm. uh, I, we don't know, right? So it's hard, it's hard to understand what their motivations are. Yeah, I mean, so, so essentially the guy, well, whoever wrote that post, um, he's being paid to perform denial of service attacks. Right. Uh, I mean, the post made it very clear that uh, he's made quite a bit of money. He said that, or whoever it is, I'm not sure if it's he or she, 
uh, whoever they are, uh, they said they made quite a bit of money doing dis distributed denial of service. They didn't say other things. They didn't say hacking or compromising things or stealing things. They said, you know, we've made our cl uh, clip doing distributed denial of service and it's time to hang it up, right? And so um, how they got paid, the manner in which they got paid or how much, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it seems like an interesting point that they would specifically mention that in the post. Because I guess that was one of my questions was, I mean, uh, denial of self, distributed denial of service is just one type of, you know, activity. Um, what else could this botnet be used for? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, right? So, and, and this is something that we uh, had to help a lot of folks understand, uh, especially when they start to get the law enforcement notification saying that a device in their infrastructure is participating in an attack against uh, the critical infrastructure of the internet, the, d the domain name services. Um, so the distributed denial service is one piece. You know, uh, if a device in your infrastructure, in your building, or your hospital, or your house uh, becomes compromised and it's being used to uh, participate in a distributed denial service, that's a bad thing. Uh, we definitely don't want that. Uh, but also, you have to remember that the device is compromised, right? Uh, and it's compromised uh, usually at a very privileged level, which means that whoever is using the device to participate in the distributed denial service can also use the device as essentially a lily pad into whatever network the device is in. And so uh, having done a lot of facility automation, building control assessments, uh, we know that you know your CCTV, your HVAC systems, your access control systems, uh, all those systems uh, are usually reside on a single network, right? Your control system network. They may be VLAN, uh, they may be segregated in some way, but uh, they are on your corporate infrastructure or your or, or your operations infrastructure. And so, uh, if you find a device that's been compromised, if you get notification from law enforcement saying, "Hey, your device is participating in these attacks," uh, you definitely want to stop the distributed denial service attack. But you also want to understand whether or not someone leveraged leveraged your device to take advantage of other things in the network that the device is in. And so if that's your operational network, uh, you want to take a look at the adjacent uh, the adjacent uh, items, inside, uh, adjacent systems inside your operational network to make sure that they haven't been compromised as well. Uh, if that device is in your corporate network or in a corporate data center or something like that, uh, you want to make sure that someone hasn't used that device to pivot further into your network because from a technical standpoint, they'll have that capability. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. I yeah, I was going to ask. I'm going to see. We, we're focusing here on embedded um, systems, well, embedded devices. Sorry, but the, I guess they do have some operating system, some software embedded in there, right? That's running that particular bit of equipment. Uh, y they do. So uh, normally, the embedded devices are going to be using a, an operating system that's referred to as a real-time operating system. Okay. Um, most of those are, you know, like Linux-based, essentially. Uh, some of the most popular ones, like VxWorks and BusyBox, um, they're using a, a variety of uh, of, of devices. Um, but you know, Mirai, what Mirai did is it, it essentially just uh, ignored the operating system that's running on and focused more on the processor architectures, and so. Uh, that's another thing that we'll see. Uh, you know, the processor that's in your laptop, uh, you know, is what we refer to as a kind of an x86 processor. And most embedded devices don't use an x86 processor; they use like an ARM or yeah. a MIPS or PowerPC. And so, and Mirai had modules to essentially work on those processors. Right. So they they understood very well what the architecture of these these. Guys. They certainly did. Yeah. Um, you cannot. Uh, have malware that runs on different processor architectures by accident. Uh, you have to deliberately make it so where your code or your software can run on other processor architectures. It's something that they uh, took the time and deliberately did. Mm -hmm. Got some good questions coming here, so I'll just put them to you now. Um, do you have any more details on the categories of device types? So, for example, um, you know, out of those estimated 500,000 devices, what makes what do you think makes up the different chunks of that in terms of type of device? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a breakdown, a good breakdown as as far as the percentages go. Um, I can tell you that I, I can't say specifically which devices we looked at, but uh, I can tell you that this does span beyond uh, CCTV. It spans beyond DVR. Um, it, it's it spans into a lot of different devices. And so, if we looked at how Mirai attacked devices. 
essentially what they were looking for. The, the most popular method that Mirai was using to compromise devices was Telnet. And so if a device has Telnet open um, and you know utilize one of the default passwords that was in the password list, uh, it would become compromised, right? So, um, so uh, they didn't target a specific industry. They didn't target target a specific set of devices. Uh, essentially, what they what they targeted was a, a listening service that might be available on the device. And so, uh, and I can tell you right now, you know, open Telnet ports, uh, we've seen in essentially every industry, you know, from building automation to healthcare uh, to data data center systems. Uh, Telnet is a popular uh, protocol that people are using. It's a popular service that people are using on embedded devices. Uh, you know, some older operating systems, uh, you know, like um, you know, like BusyBox and uh, even Windows CE uh, had Telnet, you know, kind of as a default uh, service that would be listening. And so, unless you took specific steps to turn it off, you may inadvertently be having that service available. That would be a service that Mirai would be attacking. Right, so it's certainly something to look out for. Certainly, yeah. Um, it, you know, just because you're in a certain vertical uh, doesn't mean that you're immune to uh, what, what Mariah was doing. Another question: uh, What are what are the best practices to protect to protect buildings and devices, uh, and also to identify if they've been infected? Yeah, that's that's a good question, um, and and we'll, we'll try to handle that in, in kind of two pieces here. So. Uh, one of the first things that we always tell folks uh, that they need to understand is, are your devices facing the internet, directly facing the internet? Um, that, is a, that is a perfect storm uh, of a situation where you could find yourself in a lot of trouble. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened here with Mirai, right? So uh, if you, you know, throw a device onto the internet right now and it has Telnet open uh, and you're using one of these default passwords that are in this password list, uh, that device is going to get compromised very quickly. And so uh, if you have devices that are facing the Internet, I'm not saying that you have to take them off quickly or get, get rid of them off the Internet. You have to understand that the device is facing the Internet uh, and that if someone wants to attack the device or system, they can attack it at any moment in time, whenever they want to, right? So that's uh, a very important concept to understand. And if you're willing to live with the risks uh, that are associated with having Internet-facing control systems, uh, then you need to implement the appropriate mitigating and compensating controls to essentially control that risk, right? So uh, that's probably one of the biggest things that we uh, warn people about, internet-facing infrastructure, uh, whether it's a device or control system uh, or uh, other software that's going to help you run uh, infrastructure. Uh, the reason that's important is because the devices themselves are usually uh, very poorly defended, you know, from both an operational and a security engineering standpoint. Uh, they usually are not very robust in uh, the defense capabilities that they offer. So uh, when we encounter devices, uh, when we have direct communication passed to devices, uh, it usually doesn't end very well for the device, right? And so uh, you have to have mitigating and compensating uh, mechanisms to help the device defend itself, essentially. So, and the, the last piece is a really tricky question is, you know, how would you tell if a device has been compromised? Uh, that's actually really hard. Uh, it's much harder than implementing, compensating, and mitigating controls. Uh, whenever we do things like supply chain analysis or compromise assessment against devices, um, it takes a very, very specialized skill set to do that. So, uh, but uh, if you're interested in building that capability for yourself, uh, what you can do is do things like what the authors of Mirai did, right? So uh, understand what processor architectures your software is using. Uh, have a good set of known good software that's associated with these devices, whether it's known good firmware, known good installation media, uh, those types of things. And uh, have a kit, essentially, if you want to be able to interact with these devices. So if you want to get low-level artifacts from the devices itself, you should know what tools you need to do that, whether it's a specific JTAG connection or a specific set of software or a specific set of connectors. Uh, you should have that ready to go, essentially, in a jump bag. Uh, you don't want to have to deal with those situations when your hair is on fire and you've been contacted by law enforcement and you have devices participating in an attack and you're trying to stop that. Uh, that's not the time that you want to be building your kit, building your capability. Uh, that's the time you want to exercise the kit that you have and exercise your capability. So uh, understanding how your devices work at a very detailed level before an event happens is very important. Yeah. Another question. 
You're just trying to gauge the types of compromised devices. Do you have any idea like what was used from the commercial aspect and what was used from residential? Like, um, is there any indication of that? Were these kind of like smart home devices that were being compromised or were they, or were they actual? You know? It was, it was both. It was both. Um, that's, that's hard to uh, ascertain as well. And I'll tell you why this is something that uh, I think everyone is struggling with. So, um, unlike traditional IT, uh, where you know if you have a web server, for example, uh, you know you have a corporate network, you have a web server, um, you usually go to the IT team and say, "Hey, I need a IP address that's facing the internet to set this web server up." And and so when someone scans the web server, uh, the web server is actually in your corporate IP block, right? It belongs to your corporate IP kind of uh, block. And so someone can say, "Hey, this web server belongs to Whitescope, or this web server belongs to Acme Bank." Um, embedded devices don't work that way, and so you know, in 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 the building automation world, in the healthcare world, and in critical infrastructure, uh, what happens is you know the customer, whether it's a bank or a hospital or a data center, uh, they usually hire a third party, you know, an integrator, right, a contractor essentially, and so and the contractor sets the devices up, not the actual customer themselves, the end user. And so a lot of this connectivity is actually brought by the contractor or integrator so that they can do remote management of these devices, which is a very important capability to have from both from a, a business standpoint, a cost standpoint, and a capability standpoint. And so, but the challenge that this brings is what we've seen is that even for corporate devices, we'll see that uh, the devices are not in the corporate IP space. And so we'll, we'll come across building automation controllers, we'll come across uh, things that are running people's HVAC, data centers, uh, medical devices, and the devices are not in a corporate IP space. Instead, they're just kind of in a traditional commercial ISP, which where you would find like a residential uh, device as well. So uh, this makes it hard to actually identify who the owner of a device is, whether it's just some random person who misconfigured their, uh, you know, their wireless uh, internet access, or whether it's actually a corporation who had the device installed by a third party who's, uh, who the third party set up to have remote management capabilities. And so uh, determining the amount of kind of residential uh, consumer compromise versus corporate compromise in this case is actually really hard. So, But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, the cases that we worked on, they were all corporate cases. And so we know that there was a pretty significant amount of corporate device compromise uh, that that was had, and and I have a feeling that the residential compromise, you know, probably just never got addressed. Right, contacting individuals and letting them know what's going on is definitely a hard proposition. So yeah, it's probably it's similar. hard to say what yeah it's hard to say what the percentages are. Yeah. Do you think that uh, Mirai contributed or will contribute to a backlash against smart devices, growth of connected devices? Well, I I think. Um, you know, I think we've crossed that bridge. I, I don't think there's a turning back. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I can tell you is that Mirai did get attention from regulators and legislators. And so, um, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm sure that's a conversation for the bar room. Uh, but uh, it's enough, I mean, what we have to do is face the fact that legislators and regulators, um, you know, this is something that is certainly on their radar. And Mirai was a huge data point for that. Um, and and so you know whether or not they understand the risks and the challenges associated with connected devices, I'm not sure. You know we're we're asked to talk to folks uh, here in the United States, you know, in in D.C. about connected devices and the risks and things that we've seen. Uh, and and you know sometimes we walk away from these meetings going, I, I don't know if these folks really understand, you know, what they're dealing with here. Yeah. And so um, you know if you if you are part of a major consortium, if you Run a building automation consortium, or a building control systems consortium, uh, or or you're very influ influential in that industry. Uh, it might be a good idea to try to get ahead of this because I think the last thing any industry wants is uh, a lot of regulation or legislation pushed down upon them, especially if that legislation or regulation doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So basically, just get involved in that process because it's going to happen. Right, and and get in front of it. Right, uh, to just let it happen without your involvement uh, in your industry, I think is a mistake uh, because it will happen. And so uh, the more you can influence this and the more you can get in front of it for your industry, the better. Mm. I mean, my, my sense is that 
2006 was a, was a turning point. I mean, not not just what we're discussing with Mara, but then you mentioned the um, <clears throat> Ukrainian uh, grid attack and, and also what we've seen more recently with the supposed Russian, you know, hacking as well. It, it's it's yeah, certainly. almost like it's never out of the news, right? This Or it's taking up a lot of the news cycle. So, certainly, certainly. I, I think um, there's uh, some other things that happened in 2016 where essentially, uh, you know, well, apparently the distributed denial service community has been making money off of their, their actions, but uh, malware authors in general uh, have figured out a good, repeatable way to monetize malware, and that's through ransomware, right? And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, ransomware take on new forms, and embedded devices is a great place to put malware uh, from, a, you know, from a ransomware standpoint, you know, from a malware author standpoint, because, uh, you know, usually the embedded device controls a capability. So, you know, if your energy management system got shut down or your manufacturing floor got shut down or... Uh, you, you know, your HVA system, uh, HVAC system got shut down for, you know, a sensitive facility like a data center or a healthcare facility. Uh, you don't have much time to negotiate, <laughs> right? You need to get those systems uh, back online very quickly. And the technical challenges of finding out which devices are compromised and have been affected are really difficult. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see malware authors uh, start to experiment in, in those areas over the next couple of years. So ransomware would be something where they would embed this on a, they would put this on embedded devices and they would then seek to control um, whatever system it was and then basically ask for money to stop, to, to not turn off the HVAC control or something like that. Yes, so, um, you know, or even to turn it back on, right? So um, what we've seen in data is that they'll literally take control of your data, uh, encrypt it, and so you have no access to your data. And so whatever activity that data was supporting, if you're a hospital and your patient database is encrypted, uh, you can't deliver patient care. You know, and in many hospitals that actually experienced this last year, they have to shut down uh, and divert patients to other places. Uh, but you know, I could definitely envision a situation where you, know, you come to your facility and the energy's out, right? And it's like, wow, what's going on here? And it says, hey, look, uh, we've turned it off, so it's already off. It's not like, you know, if you do this, if you don't do this, we're going to turn it off. Uh, they'll probably just turn it off, right, yeah. and say, hey, look, if you don't uh, pay the money, uh, we're not going to allow you to turn it back on via these systems. You'll have to rebuild. And so essentially you'll be making a trade-off, right, as to, hey, do I need this back right here and right now because it's costing you money to have it off, uh, or do we want to take the time to rebuild? And that's a very tricky situation for a lot of businesses and so and it's usually one of the reasons that a lot of organizations end up paying the ransom to the ransomware authors is because you know time is money in a lot of industries and you know being down for a minute two minutes three minutes uh, it could be a lot of money for them right and so uh, we, you don't want to find yourself in a situation like that but I could see uh, malware authors kind of adjusting their wares to do that right yeah this kind of brings us nicely on to talking about this year, right? There we talked about perhaps one of the trends we might see. I mean, that would be my big question to you is um, what does all this mean now for this year? Are we going to see more of this type of attacks? Or are we at a point where we sort of, are we, are we becoming, are you seeing people more capable of dealing with these kind of, uh, you know, cyber issues? You know, what's interesting is that um, there are some organizations that have gone really deep now, so and they understand embedded really well, uh, but the vast majority do not. And so and that, that makes this a very, very ripe target for attackers. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure your audience knows this very well. Uh, you know, the control systems industry, whether it's building control systems, critical infrastructure, it's really complicated. And so there's a lot of different moving pieces uh, it's not like there's just an IT group that runs everything. There's uh, an IT side of this. There's an operations side of this. There's a business side of this. Uh, they all have to be working together. There's uh, on-site engineers. There's there's field engineers. There's integrators. You know, there's supply chain that you have to deal with. And so uh, there's a lot of seams uh, where handoff has to be done, uh, where integration has to be done, where turnover has to be done. And so uh, situations like that are inherently complex and 
uh, complex systems offer a lot of attack surface. And so, uh, you know, uh, as much effort as we put into trying to defend IT systems, which we still are trying to get our arms around, uh, we're now dealing with situations where the systems of systems are magnitudes more complicated than traditional IT systems. And so you have devices from different manufacturers trying to talk to each other. Uh, you have devices from different organizations trying to talk to each other. You have cloud components for these devices that are trying to, uh, you know, do things remotely. Uh, and then you have to have all this coordination from all these devices to make them a system of systems. Uh, that is really complicated, right? It introduces a lot of opportunity for attackers to take advantage of. And so, and it's just getting more complicated, right? So it's it's just it's 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 train that we can't stop, right? So uh, we have to accept that it's really complicated and and start uh, dealing with some of these problems, you know, as they come and 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 just try to claw our way back to a place that's more manageable than we are now. Hmm. I mean, and we talked about this, uh, perhaps seeing different flavors of this this Mirai code, right? Because now it's out there; people can, as you said, build on it. Um, other than that, do you see any sort of any signs of other types of uh, botnet um, software that's that, that that is coming out? Or, I mean, this isn't going to be the only. Uh, threat that embedded devices are going to face. Yeah, certainly not. I think um, one of the things that Mirai did, where we were, we were basically lucky. Uh, I, I would say, is that uh, Mirai, you know, the attack mechanisms that were built into Mirai, uh, basically did denial of service, right? So all the attack methods that were built into the actual malware itself were focused on doing denial of service. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna get into a lot of trouble when we start to see more targeted malware. So for example, uh, if the malware knows that it's on a specific you know, manufacturer's controller and it knows that it can control specific physical processes uh, and it's going to start manipulating those processes, uh, that's when things are going to start to get you know, really interesting and, and to be honest, really dangerous, right? And so uh, that's probably going to be the next evolution of, of this type of malware, if you ask me. So what would be an example of that? That you said getting into a, the process or, sorry. Right, I mean, I think a really easy example of this is, uh, you know, when a device becomes infected uh, and the malware can determine, hey, I'm on an energy management system. Uh, I can actually control power. I can control energy to uh, specific nodes or specific, you know, facilities. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and just cause an effect, whether that's turn it off or manipulate it in some way, right? So uh, if it's an HVA system and it says, hey, the malware knows that it's on an environmental control system and it says, hey, I'm going to manipulate set points. Uh, I'm going to manipulate uh, the, the, the end devices to have actual physical effects. Uh, that, that's when we're going to start to, I think, uh, find ourselves in really interesting and dangerous situations. Yeah, right. When, when you know that you have a problem, I mean, let's say you're obviously in a building which is experiencing some weird things like set points changing something. When you know you have a problem, how easy is it to, to get rid of? Uh, it's hard. So um, I, I'll, I'll tell you uh, just kind of two examples of uh, you know, things that we've actually seen in the real world. Yeah. So uh, number one, uh, the vast majority of times that we look at actual devices for you know, a device, an actual embedded device for a compromise assessment, it's actually not the owner that identified that the device is compromised. Uh, it's usually law enforcement that's telling uh, the, someone that the device is compromised and then they end up reaching out to us saying, hey, we just got contacted by law enforcement uh, and they tell us that our device is compromised. We have no idea what to do. So uh, even detecting that things are compromised is a little tricky. Uh, and then uh, you know, once you know that a device is compromised, uh, you know, essentially making sure that it's, it's okay is really hard. And, and the example that I have there is uh, we, had, we were contacted by a major healthcare system that said, hey, we have a device that's compromised or we believe it to be compromised and it's actually beaconing out to a particular server on the internet and we're freaked out about this. Uh, and it was part of their uh, environmental control system for a healthcare organization, so it's like a pretty huge deal. And so as they tried to move to their backup uh, environmental control system, they wanted us to look at their HVA system. and. These systems are complicated, right? There are a lot of different pieces to it, and so you can't look at everything. It would take you years to try to evaluate every single component. Uh, identifying the components that are most relevant to your investigation is pretty important. 
Uh, and then at the end of the day, when we did you know narrow it down to the component that we thought was infected, and we looked at all the code, uh, we realized that the component was actually phoning home to a licensing server, <laughs> right? So uh, it wasn't phoning home to a CNC. And so uh, these are the types of things that traditional IT teams just don't understand. They 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 can't do these types of things. Uh, they don't understand the world very well. But as soon as we turned to the integrator and said, "Hey, look, uh, that's actually a licensing server that's trying to contact." And so and the, the integrator said, okay, okay, I totally get it. I understand. Yeah. Um, and then we can uh, walk the customer off the ledge and say, the device not compromised. Uh, it's just trying to get a, a new license, right? So uh, those, are, those are real examples that we came across. It's, it's going to be difficult. A lot of organizations don't have the skill sets right now to uh, figure this out for themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's moving so fast, isn't it? So it's not just it's getting the right skills and then keeping up with, with everything. Right, exactly, yep. Uh, question here, um, does malware, in your opinion, increase the value of disaster recovery systems? So separate backup systems that are kept isolated until needed? Somewhat. So um, this is another thing that uh, people will have to face in the control systems world um, that's, I think, different than IT, right? So um, in IT, we've kind of developed a mentality of, hey, a device is infected, uh, we essentially pave and rebuild, right? And so, um, in, in fact, uh, you can buy solutions that do that. Like, hey, your you know your your user's laptop is infected. Uh, automatically in the virtual in the virtual world, it says, hey, look, the, we think the laptop's infected. Boom, we're gonna erase everything on the laptop and rebuild it, right? And then we have a snapshot from you know a day ago or whatever. So you don't lose all your data, but maybe some. Um, for devices, we can't do that, right? So. <laughs> Uh, you know, if devices in your data center become infected, you can't just say, "Well, uh, we're just going to throw the device away and put in a, a new one." It just it doesn't work that way, right? So uh, anyone that's ever worn a hard hat or steel-toed boots uh, knows that even if you have the exact same device uh, that you're about to replace, if you did have two of every device, which you can't, mm -hmm. but even if you did uh, and you took a device out and tried to put another device in its place. Uh, something always breaks, right? And so uh, that is the reality of the operational world. And so uh, as the IT world kind of shifts more of this problem to uh, you know, more robust backup systems, uh, that's not a solution that I think the control system world can use. Uh, well, at least they can't use it as effectively as the IT world is going to be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, for some really highly sensitive or expensive systems or very custom systems, there is no backup, right? So uh, if your MRI machine uh, becomes infected and, and you're in a hospital, uh, that is a $300,000 to $500,000 device. Uh, that is not something you're just going to say, well, you know, just ship it to the back of the hospital and the loading docks and get the new one. It, it just doesn't work that way, right? So um, th this is a this is a space where uh, uh, the con the control systems world uh, needs a lot of help, and so and we're just talking here now about essentially the IT software that runs the control systems, uh, I haven't seen a robust backup solution that does backup of firmware or, or device configuration and things like that. I, I haven't seen one. Uh, I've seen you know, specific uh, backup solutions for specific vendors, but uh, you know, as, as your listeners probably know, you know, pretty much no environment is a homogeneous environment with just one single vendor and one type of product. Mm. Uh, it's usually more uh, more diverse, where you have a variety of manufacturers of a variety of different products. I haven't seen something that's going to help you do backup and disaster recovery for devices at that scale and level. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, one thing I was, this is probably a bit hypothetical, but you know, what would you do if you were in the shoes of uh, somebody manufacturing devices or systems that are now, you know, in inverted commas, IoT or connected? What what can what should they be doing um, to protect? Yeah, that's a really that's a good question. Um, uh, we, I've had a chance to look at a variety of devices in 2016. Uh, some of them are not on the market yet, and so you'll probably be seeing them either you know next year, or maybe in the year after. And there are some promising things you know that I've seen. Um, I, obviously, I can't get into specific manufacturers or anything like that. But some of the some of the best things that I've seen are having a really robust update. You know, story, right? So uh, an update mechanism, because 
your device, no matter how good your folks are, uh, you know, I've worked with some of the best engineers in the world, right? I had a chance to work with engineers at Microsoft, had a, a chance to work with engineers at Google. Um, even if you have the best engineers in the world, you're going to make a mistake at some point in time, right? Whether that's a security mistake or some other type of bug or a feature that you need to improve upon or a new feature that you want to push out. Uh, having a good, solid, robust, secure way to update the device uh, is really important and it gives you a lot of flexibility. It gives you options. Uh, and so uh, building that out is very important. And uh, an update story is harder than I think people give credit. So you have to have the infrastructure to serve the updates. You have to have the security for your infrastructure. You have to be able to determine whether or not you want to push-pull model, what the frequency of updates are, whether or not you're going to require a reboot to do the update and all this sort of stuff. So there is a lot of thought that has to be given to doing proper updates for devices. Uh, I would say uh, if you haven't started thinking about, if you're a manufacturer and you haven't started thinking about your update story, uh, you're behind the curve. You, you definitely need to have a robust update story. And I'm going to tell you this right now, uh, USB sticks to do updates on devices, that is not a good update story, okay? Uh, we're talking about a way to essentially do this remotely over the network in a secure way. Uh, some of the other things that I've seen uh, as well in 2016 that's gaining a lot of traction is signing, code, code signing. Uh, you know, devices are not laptops. Uh, we, are, we are not supposed to install, you know, Candy Crush and, you know, Angry Birds on devices. And so only software that came from the manufacturer should probably be running on the devices. And so a uh, mechanism to enforce that is code signing. We're only going to allow code signed by the manufacturer to run on the device. Uh, that is a pretty robust mechanism. That would uh, have stopped something like a Mirai uh, and probably stop a lot of the other types of malware that we see. That's a great idea. And one of the, yeah, and one of the last pieces I've seen too that's gaining a lot of traction is whitelisting as well. So uh, some of the, uh, I looked at a couple different devices that had both code signing and whitelisting. So, uh, you know, they would only allow certain processes to run. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, they essentially have code signing on all the operating system components, but they don't want certain things to run ever, right? Like Telnet, for example. There's no reason, even though that's a core component of the real-time operating system that the device is using, uh, there's no reason for that to run. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they whitelist uh, basically what they want to run. They don't allow anything else to run, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, so it, it, there's some promising things that are coming, I think, in the future, and I think more and more manufacturers are starting to get it. Yeah, I mean, it, that is, because it's not all bad news, is it? But, you know, there are people doing some really interesting things out there. And and there and we have the tools, or, you know, with, with good engineering, um, we can, you know, create robust systems and devices to, to cope with these kind of things. Yeah, certainly. I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I always use this as kind of this shining example when we talk to, uh, healthcare, you know, when we talk to uh, congressmen, uh, your mobile phone, right? Um, your mobile phone is pretty secure. Um, last I checked, you know, to have a pure remote exploit against a, a modern mobile phone like an iPhone or an Android, uh, you're talking, you know, you have to pay a, a security researcher or a black hat hundreds of thousands to a million dollars to have an exploit against a mobile phone. And uh, I think that just shows the robustness of the security engineering. Uh, of course, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's impossible. Nothing is ever impossible in cybersecurity, but it shows that the level of effort is really high. Uh, and so if we can get to somewhere like that, uh, I think we're, we're doing really good. We'll be in good shape. Yeah. Uh, another question here. I've heard that services that monitor network traffic and look for anomalies can be a key part of the solution. For example, um, uh, you gave or you talked about a device regularly calling up for license permissions. Uh, that would already be recognized as a normal event and so would not be flagged as, as a um, potential infection. Um, so that's a good point. Is there some kind of, you know, is, I guess that's an example of like proactive work, right, where you're, you have things that actually look for anomalies. Yeah, it's, it's a good, uh, I, I think it's good. And so um, I, I do want to explain, I think, why we see a lot of the IoT, you know, quote-unquote IoT security solutions focus on the network, network la layer. Mm -hmm. um, the processor architectures for these devices it can be different, even amongst the same manufacturer and different product lines. They may use different processors. And so uh, getting your own software on a device can actually be pretty hard. 
And so if we looked at if we look at Mirai, you know, they specifically built uh, modules for various processors so their malware could work on a variety of devices. Uh, if you want to build security software for a device, you would have to do the same thing. And so, and and, and that's not in some cases it's not easy. And so, uh, what people have done is said, hey, look, um, you know, getting something onto the device to do security monitoring uh, is right now it's too hard and it doesn't scale. And so, instead, what we'll do is we'll focus more on the network layer. And so, that's why I think we see a lot of solutions at the network layer. It's uh, more practical as far as the you know, especially if a, a huge diversity of devices. And so, uh, if you have a huge diversity of devices from multiple manufacturers that you know supporting very complex systems and you have systems of systems and uh, you know maybe these systems support very critical or safety uh, safety sensitive processes uh, then you probably don't want your your code running on the device uh, maybe the device will not allow you to run code on it your own code and so monitoring at the network levels is a really good alternative to that a really good practical alternative to that just want to say to everyone listening, uh, we're coming to the end of, uh, of our hour now. Um, so if you do have some questions, uh, put them in, um, and uh, we'll try and get them answered before we finish. Uh, one thing I want to ask, Billy, I, you know, I said, sort of said, you know, hypothetically, what would you do if you were manufacturing the devices? Also, what would, what are you, if you were a building owner, an operator, facilities manager, and in charge of a specific building, what would you be looking for from manufacturers at, or, or installers to, to know that they really understood these problems or, or were, you know, could really handle um, anything that's going to come, come your way in terms of security? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, we have the most, ex we have more experience kind of looking at it from the attacker side because we do a lot of those assessments, mm -hmm. essentially like attacker emulation against buildings. And so uh, I'll just walk you through some of the things that are essentially our bread and butter, right, and that almost work every time. Uh, and then uh, that, that'll give you some insight as to if you're like a CSO, what you should probably be asking your integrator. The first piece is, uh, I want to know where my devices are on the internet. So if my building automation and control systems, my building management systems, uh, if my uh, you know thermostats or controllers, if they're on the internet, I need to know that. Uh, and I need to determine whether or not I want to accept that risk uh, for a particular facility or not, right? So that's the most important thing. Um, devices, when they're facing the internet, if someone wants to attack them, they're usually not robust enough to defend themselves. So. Uh, and so that's that's where we're going to start. Uh, if someone hires us and says, "Hey, look, we want you to attack our facilities," we're Acne Bank, uh, and usually that's all we need. Just give us the name of the organization, and we'll just go from there. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is to uh, is uh, we're going to figure out whether or not you have any facilities that are facing the internet that are directly accessible from the internet. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that we're going to do. The second thing that we'll take advantage of is much like Mariah took advantage of is weak credentials, and so. Uh, you know, last year, early last year, uh, we put out a report of we we analyzed a hundred different configuration files for building automation systems, not not consumer IoT, not uh, healthcare, for building automation systems. Twelve percent of the configurations that we looked at, twelve percent of the devices that we looked at, had accounts with no password. So there was an account username there, and the account username had no password. Twelve percent, right? So that's one, you know, that's 12 in every 100 devices, right? So that's a huge number. 95% uh, had at least one account with a really weak password. And by really weak, we mean four characters or less, or the password was the same as a username. Wow. And so uh, usually that those two pieces right there <clears throat> are going to put you in a lot of trouble, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you can take uh, those two pieces off the table, uh, now you've changed our game from, uh, hey, just a general uh, sweep of infrastructure and just kind of random uh, password guessing. Now we actually have to dig down and say, okay, what are we looking at here? Now we have to write custom things to get access to custom devices or software, uh, and we actually have to work for it, basically, right? And so, and, and that's what you want to do. You don't want to make it easy uh, for someone to get access to your devices. You want to... Yeah, yeah, that's great. Great advice. Well, um... As we're coming to the end now, um, Billy, if, if they want more information on the work that you've done and um, or want to contact you, how can they do that? Yeah, I think the best way is just uh, to send us an email. 
um, just billy.rios at whitescope.io. Uh, that's the easiest way. Okay. And uh, we had a report, published a report last year um, about the Internet of Things and smart buildings. And um, that's sort of an in-depth look at, you know, the systems that are going into buildings and, and what's being connected and why. And so I encourage people to, to go and read that. There's obviously go to the website as well. There's a lot of articles about this, about this. And we did cover the, uh, the attacks, Mirai attacks last year. Uh, also, uh, we've got a webinar scheduled for next month in February. We're going to be talking about big data with uh, Dexma. So um, stay tuned for that. That's going to be towards the middle of the month. Uh, so, yeah, it just really remains for me to say thanks, Billy. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a super interesting talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime. Thanks again. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, goodbye.